Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're all about producing content where you can be inspired by and learn from amazing female entrepreneurs and leaders to help you achieve and even exceed your career goals. Before we begin this week's episode, though, it would mean a huge amount if you could rate and review our show if you haven't already. Consider it as your kind deed for the day. And we'd love to hear from you. So why not follow us or message us on LinkedIn? Mention the podcast and we'll be all ears. And now enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome. Boy, we've had so much rain in Sydney in the past two months and I'm feeling like a bit of a drowned rat, to be honest. Well, happily, you don't look like one. That's true. (laughs) Now, a non-weather related reminder to our listeners that our mini episodes are taking a break for a little while. So you can expect a fresh and exciting guest from us every second week here on the show. And fresh and exciting is one way to describe today's guest Although, to be honest, it doesn't really do her justice. No, it doesn't. Lucinda Barlow is Senior Director, Head of Marketing for Asia Pacific for Uber. And before joining Uber two years ago, she was Global Marketing Director for YouTube based in Silicon Valley. No, you're definitely right. Fresh and exciting does not do Lucinda justice. I'd say passionate, visionary and creative or something like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's about right. But in a moment, you'll be able to judge for yourself. As in this episode, you're here how this degree-qualified software and electrical engineer ended up as a sought-after global marketing leader, how Lucinda changed her life and her job after receiving some wise advice from fashion designer and icon Diane von Furstenberg, how she thinks about making big career transition decisions, and why she believes failure should be celebrated more, and how Lucinda brings creativity out in all of her teams. You'll love this one. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the incredibly passionate and creative Lucinda Barlow. Lucinda Barlow, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thanks so much for having me, Claire and Greta. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's really exciting because obviously we know each other really quite well and we've been wanting to have you on the show for ages and ages, even though you didn't know it. You know, it's such a joy to be able to actually sit down with you and have this conversation. So before we really get into learning more about you and exploring what makes you tick, one of the first questions that we like to ask our guests, just so that it really helps our listeners ground who they are, is if you had to describe what you do at a dinner party to someone How would you do that briefly? I would say I lead the marketing team for Uber across Asia. And our job is to make Uber and Uber Eats the go-to app for you to go anywhere every day in your city or get anything delivered in the next hour. And that may be 
more than you do with Uber and Uber Eats today if you're a, a user. And so our job is to create new behaviors and introduce new ways to use us. Wow. It's great. And there's one more thing which has actually become more of a, of a mandate in the last few months. I don't know if you know this, but Uber is actually the largest source of work in the world. That's incredible. It's incredible. It blew my mind. Over 30 million people have become drivers or delivery partners in the last few years. Wow. You know, that could be flexible work or it could be more out, you know, many hours a week. There's so much demand that we need to also bring new driver partners and couriers onto Uber to help drive, whether they've got an extra hour or they're between jobs, we bring them on and get them earning flexible earnings. Wow, that's that's incredible. When you think of how it's expanded over the last few years, I mean, obviously COVID has just been, particularly for delivery, must have been absolutely huge. Yeah, absolutely. I think when everyone was at home, they needed food, needed to feed their families, and then increasingly also need groceries, alcohol, convenience, retail. And so, yeah, there's just this big expectation of on-demand delivery. It's become a brand new behavior. And yeah, it's definitely, we've been catching up to to meet that demand. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, we'll, we'll probably come back to a little bit more about Uber a bit later, But before we do that, really love to just sort of learn a lot more about you. Is there a story about how you got into this current role and and this industry? That's right, because I'm thinking I've seen on your sort of LinkedIn, you know, degrees in electrical engineering and computer science. And here you are running marketing for Asia for one of the coolest, biggest tech companies in the world. So yeah, what's the story? Interesting. There was this quote from Steve Jobs, which is that you can only connect the dots when you look backwards. He studied (laughs) calligraphy at university and then typography became so crucial to Apple and iPod and so forth. So when I look back, I think, gosh, what's been the connecting thread? And I think it is art and science. I've always been passionate about both and probably in equal measure. My high school yearbook has in my final year um, what I want to be when I'm 40. And my dream job is I will be a part-time engineering manager, part-time rock star. (laughs) Oh my God, that is so brilliant. That is so you, Lou. (laughs) I know. I feel like I'm I'm there. I made it, right? You did. Marketing is engineering and, and rock star. Yeah. So I, I, when I look back, I think, you know, at school, I, I loved maths and physics and I was really good at those. And then I did art outside of school. I loved portrait painting and oil painting and life drawing. And so I was, did that, you know, throughout high school and then a bit into university as well. And so I always had this passion for creativity, but also loved numbers, the logic of, of numbers and data. And so I did do engineering and computer science. I worked in heavy industry, very briefly, I might add, because there wasn't a lot of creativity there. And then I was never exposed to marketing until I went and worked in a a dot-com startup, which was a very entrepreneurial and creative space, and found myself in the U.S., I was the technical director for this product and was kind of, you know, didn't really know what I was doing, but met with a marketing manager, an amazing woman who just seemed to have the dream job. She brought insights in about the product and the customer. She um, had a really creative go-to-market plan. Everything she did seemed to be exactly what I wanted to do. 
And so from that, I then went and did an MBA and then stayed in tech because I, I love tech. It inspires me. I do think it is an industry that attracts pragmatic dreamers. <laughs> I love that phrase. Yeah, people who are inspired by big ideas, by, by mission and creative ways to get things done. And then I would say that throughout my career, the highlights have been where I've been able to bring creativity and technology together. Lucinda, one thing I'd love us to turn to now, knowing just how creative a person you are, and you've talked about this blend of art and science, how do you stay creative whilst managing a team and making sure they're all doing well as well? Yeah, I'm really passionate about this. It's actually part of my purpose. So my personal purpose is to unlock magic in people, creativity, and the world. And I think you cannot have an outsized impact on the world without creativity. Uber's ambition is vast and it needs creative thinking from everyone. So I think knowing that it is necessary is really important. And then you think, okay, what fuels it? I think that everyone has the power to be creative. I think culture can enhance it or stifle it. So creativity is actually very social. It's fueled by other creative people or thinking. It's contagious. And you know, we're all born with this ability to play and experiment and combine data and ideas, think about different ways to solve things. And so you need to set a culture that allows that, gives permission, creates space, you know, that is safe. And so the sort of things that unlock it are other creative people working with incredible creative agencies, getting cross-functional teams together and have inspired different thinking asking for it, saying, okay, we're, can we think about this in a different way? Asking what if questions and then really getting excited when someone comes back with a solution that blows your mind. For instance, my team came back and said that we're going to do the first delivery in space. The other thing is to be wary of what stifles creativity. And I think that is neglect. I think it's being too busy. It's also any kind of culture of cynicism or fear. It can be absolutely lethal for creative thinking. I think people need to feel free to take risks. There was one thing actually that we did in our team last year that I was so excited about. So I was chatting with my team about this. Do we feel like we're being creative enough? And how can we also democratize creativity so people don't think it's something that just the marketing team does? And there were a few people from, it was a team of about three or four from different countries, India, Australia, Korea, and Japan. And they came together and worked on this project, which was called Snowstorm. And the mission was to democratize creativity and reawaken the creative spirit within Uber Asia, APAC. And so they created a platform to, for anyone to brainstorm ideas, surface those ideas, and then build support to vote on them. Anyone could then go and, and shop through the ideas to take back to their teams. And we had a thousand people get involved in it. And we had the extraordinary ideas come out of this from things like better recycling for our Uber Eats products through to international job swaps for people internally, through to new alternative ways for our driver partners and careers to earn. The number of ideas was so extraordinary. So those ideas, Liz, anyone can use them. Ideas are free. 
right? You can generate them, you can, and they will help generate more. But on top of that, we will now also go ahead and invest in some of the really big ones and make them happen. So yeah, it's something I'm really passionate about. And there are all kinds of creative ways to actually bring creativity out in your teams. So exciting. And I, I have to say, I just cannot let this go. I had heard about this, but this delivery in space, how did that come about? And, and did they manage to achieve it? They did. Incredible. Oh, incredible. This was a Japan team, wasn't it? It was the Japan team. Yeah. So yeah. there is a very entrepreneurial billionaire called MZ in Japan, who is going to be the first private citizen to land on the moon in 2023. And he was doing a training mission to the International Space Station at the end of last year. And he got in touch with us. And he's because Uber Eats is an iconic brand. It's a culture brand in Japan. We're part of culture. There's a lot of chat about us and so forth. And so he got in touch and he said, I want to go dressed as a delivery partner. So we were like, yes, we're in. We trained him as a delivery partner. So he had to go through all the safety training and the driver checks and the background checks and all the things that we do for safety. And he then went <laughs> into his rocket and what do you say? Flew up, blasted up. I don't even know what you say. Yeah, up into space. And he delivered was actually cans of food, space food. <laughs> Didn't look that appetizing, I've got to say, but he delivered those to the astronauts up on the International Space Station. And it was, it was such a great story. We were able to share that around the world. It was very exciting. Brilliant, brilliant. It, you know, it, what, what it is, is it, it shows just your team's ability to take an idea and actually run with it, you know, and not be scared of an, of an idea that's so big. Totally. Yeah, yeah, they're the best. They are. Lou, you, you talked about, you know, the fact that you've been involved in lots of things that haven't worked out, so that have failed. How do you think about failure? I think it is just a necessary part of innovation and creativity. It's just a part of life. And it is something you learn from and you grow from and it gets better. So I've been involved in failed startups and I've learned something myself from them. Was it the management that didn't work out? Was it the technology? Were we before our time? I've also learned from projects that haven't worked out. Oh, okay. Are there parts of that that we can adapt and take on to other projects? Google, certainly I was at Google for 11 years and there are so many examples of failures within Google that were then used in other parts of you know, like Google Wave. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So Claire and I were both working at Google in Australia at the time when this brand new audacious bet, well, this was probably 15 years ago, you know, let's reinvent email. Now, ultimately that did not work out, but so many aspects of that were redeployed into cloud products, into making Gmail better. And then you see products like Slack, which are so similar today. And so I, I just think it's a necessary part. And I think if you want to encourage a culture of creativity and risk-taking, you've got to normalize failure, embrace it, celebrate it, learn from it. And, you know, woohoo, great. We failed. Yeah. Let's move on and, and learn from it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, actually, you know, thinking back to those times at Google, one of the things I think was absolutely amazing was you never felt like it was 
really a failure failure. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was like, you know, as you said, we take bits of this and we put them into other parts of the product or, or into a different project, or we'll use this learning here. And it was never, I don't know, it probably was devastating for the engineers and the people that were really, really close to the product. But it, internally, it never felt like it was really devastating. Is that ha- how you felt? Absolutely. It was celebrated. Yeah. And it's really, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's such a, it was such a major piece of the culture. And I'm not sure I've seen that. Certainly, my experience of other companies has not been celebrating failure to the same extent. I agree. I'm trying to bring it into Uber, I've got to say. And I still struggle a little bit, say, even in a team, all hands. Team, are there examples where something hasn't worked? Can you bring these? And, you know, there will always be 17 amazing projects that we want Mm. to showcase. And it is quite hard to get the one or two learnings or many more. And, you know, the more spectacular, the better, quite frankly. I want to be able to put them up as showcases to say, what did we learn from this? There could be, you know, the strategy's wrong or the process to get there was wrong. I think normalizing those things is really important and creating that culture of learning constant learning. Yeah. That's interesting because my next question to you is, you know, what are one or two habits that you have put in place in your life that you think have made you the success you are today? I think the first is optimism. I've always been an optimist, fearless optimist, and that is a strength, but it can also be exhausting actually, because you can see opportunity in too many things. So it has to be paired with pragmatism and with process. And so I've learned that and I bring that along in my team and make sure that I've got strong partners who can help prioritize and so forth. The second one is actually a value that Uber has, and I love it. And it was the same at YouTube. This was also necessary trait at YouTube. And we call it forest and trees. It's being able to go very deep on data, understand the business, how it works, the KPIs, how the products work, et cetera. And then also have the broad perspective to look at implications and opportunities and the vision for the long term. So sometimes you even have to do that in the one meeting. So I think, yeah, forests and trees and optimism are two habits that come to mind. And are there any sort of like key questions or cues that you have, say, for example, during a meeting to help you find the right time to make a switch, be that between forest and trees or between optimism and process? You know, what's an example of how you keep that duality within yourself? Yeah, So really understanding the North Star, I think actually works for both. What are you heading towards? What does success look like? What do we really all need to focus on? What is the opportunity ahead? So making sure that you've spent time on that and that is aligned, you know, with your team and your cross-functional partners. Then the forest and trees, I think that can be disrupted. And a, a typical time that is disrupted is during crisis. Uber's just gone through the last two years, a massive crisis with COVID to our mobility business. And so we were able to see as the pandemic started to hit around the world, we could see through the data immediately what the impact was. And so we had to make decisions that were with the information that we had at our fingertips. We actually, at that point, had to lose sight of the North Star because 
maybe it will at least delay the North Star a year or two. And then, you know, that took practice to be able to know what do we need to react to today versus next month or a, a longer time period. So I think understand the North Star, then understand to just step back before making decisions to say, okay, what implication is this going to have? Is, is this going to make more impact than not doing something or doing something differently? Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And I think that North Star, and certainly from my experience, there are some companies that just find it very hard to really be singular in their North Star. And of course, the minute you aren't sharp enough, I think that can also really confuse the efforts and dilute the impact and everything too. I love the um, the quote that you mentioned a little while back, you know, the Steve Jobs, you only can connect the dots when you look back kind of thing. If you look back, what would you say is the best, most impactful piece of advice you've been given? I think there is a piece of advice that I've actually been given in different formats a few times in my career. And it's quite a similar theme. So a couple of years ago, I had this piece of advice from actually Diane von Furstenberg. I was lucky enough to sit next to her at a dinner. She is a fashion designer, in her 70s, she built the wrap dress. She's always been a, a massive supporter of women. She she made this wrap dress back in the probably the 60s so that women would not have to rely on men to zip up their dress. Amazing. I love that. Isn't that amazing? That's yeah. just a little side note. But the piece of advice that she gave me was design your life. Think about the life that you want to have embody it, visualize it, write it down, create a mood board for it, create the life you want, not the job you need, or, but think about the full life you want and it will happen. It was a very poignant time because I had been living in the US. I was working at YouTube, loving my job, but there was a calling to come back to Australia for family reasons. Actually, that night after having dinner with her, I went back home and I, I just wrote down the life I wanted. I didn't say I want to go back to Australia, but I did say I want to you know, get up every morning at 6am and go for a run on the beach. And I want my kids to grow up with their cousins. And, I, and I, it was very simple stuff. But when I read that, it was very obvious that was the life I wanted ultimately was to come back to Australia. And I also had work in there I didn't act on it immediately, but maybe a couple of years later, I was on a plane and I think I'd been traveling nonstop and I was exhausted and so forth. And I remember just, it was in my notebook and I opened it up and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I need to make this call. And so ultimately that was why I came back. But I, there's actually one other time that I remember where this, I've been given this piece of advice and that was, it was slightly, wasn't as succinct as design your life, but it was visualize and really embody what you want to do. And it was when I had just finished my MBA. So I did an MBA at INSEAD, which is an international school. I had worked in both Singapore and in France at this school. And I graduated at 2002, which was a recession. Now, many of your listeners may not remember that, but there was this recession in 2002 and it was really hard to get a job. And I had spent a lot of money on this very high-profile MBA. I'd had an incredible, enriching year. I'd met people from all over the world. I was so excited and inspired. And I was also 
wanting to change countries from Australia to some, you know, England or somewhere else. I was wanting to change industries from heavy industry. I'd been working as a real-time mission critical systems engineer and a software engineer, and I was wanting to move into mobile and then also discipline from engineering to marketing. And so I had these three big changes I had to make and there were no jobs and I had no money. I mean, I was living in London and I, I, it was, I think I remember the exchange rate was appalling. It was sort of like I'd go to a restaurant and get some bread. I just felt just after this incredible year of an MBA to not have a job. And I, you know, I, I was a bit ashamed. And so I then had to think, gosh, what do I do? And I got some part-time work in marketing, which was fantastic. But I also just wanted to visualize this job that I wanted. And so I remember just writing down that I wanted to work. I didn't know what the industry would be or the job or anything like that, the exact title. But I knew that I wanted to collaborate. I wanted to brainstorm. I wanted to work on on launches. I wanted to work with a cross-functional team. And I wanted there to be this art and science. And I wrote all this down. And pretty soon things started to work out. I actually, I don't know if you know this, Claire, but I, I also had to get married because I, otherwise I would be kicked out of the UK. No, I did not know that. <laughs> so that's how I ended up marrying wonderful Andy, who has been my beloved husband ever since. And we were going out, but we probably wouldn't have got married immediately if it hadn't been for that visa imperative. So I ended up getting married. I think I was 26, just turned 26. And the day after my wedding, I had a job interview. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But I was in a very happy mood. And I ended up getting a job in marketing working for Symbian, which was a smartphone software company working on global phones around the world. And within a few months, I found myself in the headquarters of Nokia in a place called Espoo. And it was winter. I was in their beautiful Scandinavian boardroom and I was looking out over a frozen lake and it was just gorgeous. And I'm sitting there in a room with about 10 people and we are brainstorming, bringing to market these new smartphones. And I just remember having this moment of, oh my God, I visualized this and I'm here. And then I very quickly went, I visualized this, I'm here. I should have thought bigger. (laughs) So I do think the power of the mind and the ability to think big, visualize what you want is really powerful. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it puts you into an, an optimistic frame of mind and then you're looking out for opportunities that could help you meet that vision. How do you advise others to sort of get their think big mojo on? Well, I think it's really important to know yourself, know your passions, know your strengths, pour fuel on them. Like I, I think your own strengths are your competitive advantage. And when you lean into those, you will do what you love and you'll be great at it. So I often think people don't always know what their strengths are. So I often ask my team to think about, or particularly people who are, who are newer in their careers, what is a skill or passion that you possess that you don't feel is being utilized every day? Or what are the core values that are really important to you? Because often those are what is in deficit. Those are what are not being leveraged. And I think actually creativity often comes out. So really know yourself, know what matters to you, your values, and then spend the time 
and you're going to have to get out of your daily routine, get out of your office, your home office, wherever you are usually at and be relaxed and then start visualizing and create like a mood board or get some inspiration. You need to think broad and think about what is going to bring you joy, what's going to spark you. And it's probably going to be this combination of your strengths, your unmet strengths and your vision, your, you know, the imagination of where you want to be. It's so funny, Lou. I'm just looking up just above my computer is my vision board. I absolutely think that it's a brilliant practice. It really is. That's and wonderful. I'd love to see it one day. Yeah. Well, I'll take, I'll take a picture and send it to you. So, you know, Lou, we've worked together a lot, both at Google and since Google. And, you know, I've worked with you as you've transitioned your career from this amazing company, Google, and an incredible job at YouTube to Uber. Now, I, I know that one of the reasons for moving to Uber was coming back to this great job in Asia Pacific. But when you think about career transitions, how do you weigh up whether to move or not? Yeah, it's a really good and sometimes scary question that you face. When I was at Google, I was very lucky over the 11 years to work in very different roles and be exposed to completely different projects. I feel like I had a whole career just in that 11 years. And I, as I looked ahead, I weighed up, you know, my principles are, am I maximizing my evolution? Am I actually going to stretch myself? Am I going to keep learning? Do I have an outsized impact on team, on creativity, on the world? And so I look at, okay, I could probably make that opportunity happen in an incredible organization like Google. But if I look at the next five, 10 years, would I have as much impact and learning as I would somewhere new. And I've got to say the opportunity at Uber, the mission, the opportunity to work with a senior leadership team in Asia Pac and be part of a global organization and help build that was wonderful. And so I I look at that sort of learning and impact. The other thing is also leadership. What will I learn from a new leader, from new people, new peers Mm -hmm. that I'll work with? So uh, yeah, that's how I made the decision to move to Uber. Very happy. Of course, I I look back on the days of Google and YouTube with just unbelievable gratitude. I loved the opportunity. I loved the people that I worked with and I have friends for life. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, you've had such a, a long and therefore it's really quite unusual, I think, career, particularly as a female, a senior female leader in tech. And no doubt when you were studying computer science and the like, you were in a minority. But in this kind of month of International Women's Day, and are there any sort of thoughts you've got on being a senior woman in tech over all these years? You know, is it changing? Is it easier for women now? What would you say? Overall, there are many more women in technology overall, which is fantastic and, you know, a very healthy outcome. I think the experience I've had has been varied. I started in heavy industry, as I say, in engineering, and I was the only woman. There were 200 men and me, and I got it. I didn't thrive. I found it was stifling. I actually did stupid things like gave myself a challenge of wearing a different outfit every day for a year. And the outfits got more and more ludicrous and no one noticed. That was obviously a a creative, just sort of desperate to get out. When I look back, I realize, okay, that's what happens when you have an odd person out or you have an other, you know, and sort of out and in groups. So as a leader, I think you've got to be really conscious of 
anyone who is in a minority who may not be thriving, who may not have their people or have community. So look out for that. I've had incredible opportunities as well. Uh, YouTube, there, I mean, as a uh, Susan Wojcicki is an amazing woman CEO. There were a lot of women in leadership positions. Nevertheless, you often feel in tech that you, you, you've got to really speak out, use your voice. And sometimes women find that hard in a large room, not always, but sometimes. I remember a couple of times we would have these strategy days. So we'd have about 50 senior leaders across the business from all different functions. And we'd come in and debate strategic questions for the future of the business and the products. It was really fun, a couple of days, and you would go deep on live streaming or short form or, you know, all these things. But it was also quite daunting because you had to express your views in the room. You had to be able to debate really soundly with data, ask questions quickly and and so forth. And what I found in that instance, we would have this community of women on ping, on back channel, on chat, supporting each other. So it was like having a cheer squad. And so there'd be an endless stream of comments that you'd have on your phone or your laptop saying, you know, great point, Lou, go, Julia, you know, speak out. You had a great question there. Or even in the room, someone would say, oh, I think, I think Johanna had a question. Can we just make sure we hear her voice? So it was incredibly supportive. And I think, again, recognizing any community you're in, be supportive because that helps everyone thrive. And I've never experienced kind of, I know you sometimes hear women not supporting each other or being cutthroat or whatever. Maybe that happens. I've not experienced it. I think being supportive of communities is really important. And I love that example in the the boardroom. I think that's so key, you know, whether it's other women or men who are listening, you know, making sure, you know, oh, I think Lucinda had a question. Can we just hear her? Being that support, as you say, is awesome. Lucinda, I'd love to, you know, have you looking ahead now, where you stand now and you look ahead at all the potential changes in technology that are coming down at us. What change in technology or prospect is exciting you the most? It's always hard to predict technology, but I think what excites me, I've got a 14-year-old boy, Felix, and he loves VR. And so I, I actually worked in VR at YouTube during what I call the winter of virtual reality. It was when there uh-huh. had been massive hype and then the experience was so lackluster and there weren't enough. People didn't know how to tell good stories and sort of immersive stories in virtual reality. The gaming industry was still behind and so forth. So it, this was back in 2016. It was just this, it was an overhyped technology. But a year ago, or maybe two years ago, we got an Oculus Quest 2, and it blew my mind. So I was actually incredibly excited about where it is going. Now, I know the metaverse is like, oh, you know, you kind of roll your eyes at it. But I think when you look at the opportunity for deeply immersive experiences, for learning, imagination, it is pretty wild and exciting. Now, obviously, that has to come with deep ethical principles and ensuring that, you know, we don't end up in Ready Player One. But I I like the opportunity to, you know, have a dinner party with the most exciting people in the world or, you know, experience a joyride or whatever it is, is great and exciting. So that, that definitely blows my mind. 
Oh, exciting. And Lucinda, last question, because we're conscious of time. If you had to define what success looks like for you, how would you do that? For me, it's, am I getting my fill? That is simple as fun. Am I having fun? Am I driving impact? Am I learning? And do I have a big life that I enjoy for me and my family? So Phil, am I getting my fill? That's it. I love that abbreviation, Phil. Yeah. Well, Lucinda, it's been such a joy to hear your story. We just uh, love this conversation and we'll have to do it again sometime. We certainly have. And, you know, I feel like I know you pretty well, but I have learned so much in this conversation that I'm sure takes it all to a new level. So thanks so much, Lou. We can't wait to to see the continued impact that you make across your teams and across the region and uh, in technology in general. And here's to Phil. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much. I love how fashion designer Diane von Furstenberg gave that simple but really powerful advice, design your life. Yeah. And then, you know, how Lou ultimately actioned that and ended up moving country. No, it's really cool, isn't it? Yeah, it's such a great story. And I'm a big believer in creating a mood board for your life or visualising what you want to be doing. Yeah, yes. Like, as you say, your vision board is right above your desk. It is indeed. I love Lou's comment when she realised when she was sitting in that Nokia boardroom that she had earlier visualised that moment. And then very quickly she thought, I should have thought bigger. That's so classic. And I also didn't know until today that Lou trained as an electrical engineer and a computer scientist. Yeah. Yeah, no wonder she's in demand as a marketing leader now. That marriage of art and science is the perfect combination for marketing today. Yeah, she's just got such a great background and skill set. You know, I, I work with Lou a lot and I just love how optimistic she is. Yeah. You know, it was so valuable for her and her team when the pandemic broke out and uh, Uber saw its primary business of moving people around in cars was totally put on radical hold. I know, it must have been quite a stressful time to say the least. Yeah, you can say that again. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time with a woman who's just written a book about the key mindset shifts we need to have the most successful and enjoyable careers. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay dry if you're in Sydney. And if you celebrate it, have a wonderful Easter break. Ciao for now. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.